So a reading from the second book of the Bible, Exodus, on page 87, if you have one of the church Bibles. So reading from verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if a war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter, who went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? 
Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Thanks, David. Morning again, everyone. Uh, you should have an outline in the leaflets if you've got one as you walk in that will just give you a bit, bit of an idea of where we're going for the next few minutes. And if you've got a Bible open there, keep it open. Uh, we'll have a bit of a look at the second half of chapter two as well, which we didn't get to in the reading, but I'll touch on that as well. The Bible was written over a, a male-dominated period, and so men tend to feature more prominently. But there's a number of occasions where women play a pivotal role in God's unfolding plan of salvation. And as you probably picked up, Exodus 1 and 2 is one of those passages. God uses the courage and the compassion of five women to stand up to evil and to pave the way for his plan of deliverance for his people. We're beginning a new series this week. We're looking at the first half of the book of Exodus over the next eight weeks. And Exodus takes us through a series of of gripping events that see God's people Israel move from slavery in Egypt to to being free and obediently worshipping God. There's much more, there's much that we learn about God in Exodus, Uh, his faithfulness and his holiness, which we've sung about already this morning, his loving concern for his people who are his treasured possession, his knowledge and his control over events and circumstances. And we learn the importance of God's people being obedient to his word, being faithful to him. But importantly, we learn that God redeemed his people before they had proved themselves worthy. The events that take place in Exodus are going to be central to God's people's understanding and how they relate to him for centuries to come, which, we, which is clear as we continue to read through the Bible after Exodus. And they also shape the way that God's people today relate to him, knowing that the Exodus from Egypt foreshadows an even greater act of redemption that God has done through Jesus. Exodus begins with God keeping the first part of the promise that he's already made to his people. So if we we rewind back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see that God gives uh, some covenant promises to Abraham. He promises Abraham countless descendants. He promises them land and blessings. And in fact, he promises that all people will be blessed through them. And the book of Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off, which is, with Jacob's sons, who are Abraham's great-grandchildren, in Egypt, where they multiply quickly, they spread out, and they fill the land. And so God's promise to Israel that that they'll possess the land of Canaan hasn't been fulfilled yet, but his promise of countless descendants is quickly becoming a reality for them. But then things change. A new king comes to the throne, in Egypt, a king who either doesn't know or doesn't care about the good relationship that Egypt and Israel have had for so many years. All he knows is that Israel have grown too numerous, and he fears them. So he puts them under harsh labor. He makes them Egypt's slaves. But, verse 12, the more the Israelites are oppressed, the more they multiply, 
and spread throughout the land. And the more they multiply, the more the Egyptians fear them. And the more the Egyptians fear them, the more harsh they make the slavery. So it becomes a bit of a, a, bit of a revolving cycle. None of this is a surprise to God, though. Back in Genesis 15, when he made his promises to Abraham, he said that Abraham's descendants would be slaves for 400 years in a country not their own, but that God would punish the country that enslaved them. So eventually, Pharaoh decides that he's had enough. Okay, he says, you're going to keep growing? Let's kill all your sons. Let's see what happens then. And he gives those orders to the midwives. That's, this is a horrible situation. Many of, many of us will be familiar with this story, how it unfolds, how it ends. And in any case, history is littered with countless and measureless acts of evil and cruelty that humans inflict on each other. And so we can read this almost without feeling it. But let's not miss the gravity of what's happening here. One nation brutally enslaved by another, and now being forced to kill their own newborn sons. This is evil and cruelty in its extreme. Let's also not miss the courage of the two Hebrew midwives here. Not people of high power by any standards, and yet they defy the most powerful man in the world to his face. We hear Pharaoh's order to the midwives in verses 15 and 16 that they're to kill all the baby boys, and we think, what a heartless tragedy. But then, verse 18, the women courageously let the boys live. They defy Pharaoh's orders. But then, verse 18, the king confronts them, and we think, how will they get out of this alive? And yet, God is kind to them. He protects them. He protects the babies, and the people increase, and they grow even more numerous. Now, if you're the sort of person who enjoys asking the curly questions that, that the Bible raises at times, what you'd be wondering is, was it right for them to lie? Did they do the right thing there? What do we make of that? Because in verse 19, they blame their actions on the fact that Israelite women give birth quicker than Egyptian women, which, let's be honest, is probably not a completely truthful answer. So what do we make of that? Well, the writer of Exodus doesn't focus on this issue. In verse 21, it's clear that God rewards the midwives not for lying, but for fearing him. For fearing him more than they feared the most powerful man in the world, more than they feared the harm that could come their way. This passage certainly doesn't defend lying. God's, the passages like this where we see God's sovereignty being, being played out through human actions, it doesn't necessarily tell us that the human actions were always the right ones. I think we're, we're selling God's sovereignty short if we think that we have to lie for his plans to come to be. Just as a comparison passage, Daniel chapter 3, when Daniel's friends are, asked, are, are told to ask whether they bow down to an idol, they, they could have lied in that situation and probably got away with it without any harm. But instead, they tell the truth, and God still delivers them and still uses them for the purposes he has for them. Now, it's not, there does need to be wisdom in, in the manner that the truth is disclosed. Like if I was a missionary in North Korea, I probably wouldn't go around the streets yelling out that I was a Christian necessarily. But a passage like this certainly 
doesn't tell us that lying is the right option. But as I said, the, the focus is not on the lie. The, the focus is on the courage of the midwives. It's one of those passages where I wonder what I would have done. Would I have had the courage to stand up for what I knew was right in God's sight in that situation? Particularly when God must have seemed so silent in their circumstances over those last 400 years, and the king was so powerful. Anyway, Pharaoh realizes that he's been beaten by two women, and so he orders all of his people in Egypt to kill the sons. So God has multiplied his people. He's begun to keep the promises that he made to Abraham, but now surely they're doomed. Surely this is the end of the road right here. A son is born to an Israelite family in chapter 2, verse 2. But what hope is there for this child? Even if he miraculously escapes execution at birth, he's destined, surely, for a lifetime of slavery. Once that happens, God's plan to deliver his people is going to be fulfilled through this son, a special son. The boy's mum does everything that she can to care for her son. But when she realizes she can do nothing more to hide him, she puts him in a basket, she waterproofs the basket using tar and pitch, and she places it among the reeds in the River Nile. And the boy's sister then watches to see what's going to happen to her baby brother. But what hope is there? Imagine the trauma and the heartache of this family, especially this mother, as she watches these events unfold. And then, of all people, Pharaoh's daughter is the one who finds the baby, the daughter of the man who wants all babies, including this one, killed. This is really, really bad. But what happens next? Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby, and she feels something that her father has not felt for these children, compassion. And the boy's sister who's watching, she sees her chance. She just happens to be walking past and she says to Pharaoh's daughter, oh, I can find you a Hebrew woman to look after that baby if you want. And who does she bring? She brings the boy's mum. And so the son is nursed by his own mother and then grows up in Pharaoh's daughter's household. This abandoned, doomed Hebrew baby has now become the prince of Egypt. And there's no shortage of irony in this story, is there? Do you notice that Moses' mum actually did what Pharaoh told her to, to throw the baby in the river? The baby is found and rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter. And Pharaoh foots the bill for this child to be raised by its own mother. There's a lot going on here. The powerful king's plans have been thwarted by midwives, by a small child, but ultimately by a much more powerful God. Still, no one would have thought that this child would be Israel's deliverer, but Moses grows up and despite his Egyptian heritage, he identifies with his people, the Israelites. As we look at the, I realize we didn't read the second half of chapter two, but if you skim along through it, we see that Moses sees the hard labor that the Israelites are under. He sees an Egyptian beating one of them and He can't just stand there and watch this. He kills the Egyptian. 
What we see is that deliverance just seems to be in Moses' DNA. He stands up for this Israelite who's being attacked. He then stands up for an Israelite who is being attacked by another Israelite. At this point, he realizes that his, the game's up and he has to flee to save his own life. And he goes into the desert and he, he then delivers some Midianite women from some rogue shepherds. Uh, he gets married, he has a child, and he names his first child after being a foreigner in a foreign land. And so doing that, he's identifying further with his people who are also foreigners in a foreign land. In fact, Moses' own name comes from being drawn out of water, which is perhaps a hint about the way that he's going to rescue his people years later. Moses is a deliverer. He identifies with his people, and yet his Egyptian heritage is going to guarantee him an audience with Pharaoh when the time is right. And so the clues are there that maybe, just maybe, this Moses is the deliverer that God has raised up for his people. And the time has come for God to act. We see in verse 23, the king of Egypt dies, and the people in slavery cry out for help to God. And how does God respond? Well, we see in the last couple of verses of chapter 2, he hears their cry. He remembers the covenant that he's made with Abraham. He sees what they're going through. And he's concerned for them. And we're left with this sense that God is going to act. And that Moses is the man who he's going to act through. The scene is set for God to deliver his people and to keep his promises. Uh, the events of the Exodus, which we'll see unfold over the next few weeks, as momentous as they are, they're just a foreshadowing of God's ultimate rescue plan that he will bring into place. See, over a thousand years after Moses, another son is going to be born. Again, a powerful and yet fearful king is going to seek to end this child's life. And again, his parents will act to try and make sure that that doesn't happen this time, ironically, by escaping to Egypt. Like Moses, Jesus identified with the people he came to save. Jesus, son of God, and yet fully human. Perfect, without sin, and yet he took our sin on himself when he died on the cross. Only someone who was completely human, but also completely without sin, would be able to make the perfect sacrifice for us in that way. Only Jesus could save us. Only Jesus could make us right with God. If you're here this morning, just don't normally go to church, you're just checking out church and Christianity and what it's all about, this is the heart of the message that we come together each week to celebrate and to remind each other of, that Jesus has made that sacrifice to save us in a way that we could never have done. Without him, we are where Israel were, slaves. Slaves to sin. Sin which creates a barrier between us and God which we just can't climb over in our own strength and goodness. And it, it shapes how we read and apply a passage like this to our own lives, knowing that it points us to something even greater. So a couple of key application points that stand out in this passage. The first one is cultivating a fear of God rather than human power. The midwives who we met in chapter one defied Pharaoh, not because there was no reason to fear him, 
but because they feared God more. A God who had seemingly abandoned his people to their enemies versus a Pharaoh who was extremely powerful. What faith? Faith that God's purposes could not be thwarted by even the strongest of enemies. Jesus would later challenge his disciples in in Luke chapter 12, don't fear the one who can harm you physically. Fear the one who who controls your eternal life, the one who calls the shots for eternity. And the gospel message puts our fear into perspective, doesn't it? Because it tells us that eternal life is on the line for us and we gain that life not by being on the right end of human power, but by trusting that Jesus' death was enough to save us. And so for us, fearing God means holding firm to the gospel message, holding firm to it in our hearts, in our words, in every part of our lives. Now, I suspect that many of us, not necessarily all of us, but many of us have not faced serious physical threats for following Jesus. But we feel the weight of the world's disapproval at times, don't we? Though as we think about it, God has done amazing things when his people have been marginalized and persecuted. We, we read about the, the Egyptian, the Israelites in Egypt growing despite slavery and persecution, uh, from the early church growing rapidly despite savage, violent persecution from the Roman Empire, to the growth of the Chinese church, for example, in the 20th century, even under the, the shadow of communism. God has grown his persecuted Christian people just as he multiplied the enslaved Israelites. It's astonishing, actually. I don't know if you've ever looked at the, gone online and looked at the sort of top-ranked countries for growth in Christianity per annum, um, but if you compare the, that list of countries where Christianity is growing the most with countries where Christianity is being persecuted the most, it's amazing how many countries end up on both of those lists. You, you think, humanly speaking, it, it, it's just impossible, right? You'd expect the two lists to be the complete inverse of each other. But it's amazing how many countries Christians are being heavily persecuted, but growing day by day. The faith and endurance of persecuted Christians today is something we can learn much from. It's something we can be greatly encouraged by and something we can be greatly challenged by as well. And the growth of the persecuted church is something that that we can praise God for. There's a bit of a a somber note at the end of that that kid's video with the persecution of Christians being the last note that it ended on, but it's true, and it's really important that children realize that and are able to to know that God is still faithful in the midst of that. So are there times when you make decisions that are based on the power of others rather than the power of God? When it seems safer to, to go along with what others are doing and saying or to stick with what's culturally acceptable. I know there have been countless times in my life where the confidence and the faith of those two Hebrew midwives was sadly missing. When, in fact, the gospel message actually shows me a much more complete and greater picture of God's saving power than those two women ever had. A second key application point, actively trusting in God for the deliverance of our children. Moses' mum acted in faith when she placed him in the river. 
We read that explicitly in Hebrews 11, verse 23, that it was by faith that she placed Moses there. She knew that if her child was going to survive, it was going to be by God's power, not her own. And as we think about what deliverance means for us now, it shapes the way that we think about our children's salvation. And I don't just mean our own biological children, but our collective children in this church family. We all have children in this church. How great was it hearing from, from Steph and from that video today about our children reading through the Bible over three years? I thought that was fantastic. I've also had the privilege of um, being on Blast Camp this last weekend with a number of the children who were in that video, plus a whole lot of others, of others as well, getting to hang out near the beach with a whole lot of very energetic year ones to sixes and a, a bunch of very faithful and tireless leaders who helped to serve out, to, to serve as well. We, we ate food, we played games, we had fun by the beach, but we also got into the Bible together. We prayed together, we sang songs of praise to God together. We got to know each other a bit more. It was a really special time away together. One of the highlights of my week each week is Basement, our youth group, which meets on Friday nights. Now, at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, I feel like everybody else in this room feels like at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, and I think to myself, the last thing I feel like doing right now is spending the next five hours hanging out with some way too energetic children and, and teenagers. But I drive home that night thinking there is, sorry guys, I realize there's a whole lot of you in here, but I, I'll rescue it with this next bit. I drive home that night thinking there's just nothing else I would rather have spent my time and energy doing. It is such a wonderful thing to be a part of because having 30 plus of our high school age members coming along, getting into God's word, opening up the Bible, asking questions, building friendships with each other, singing praises to our God and wanting wanting to be there. It's a really special thing to be a part of. It's been great seeing so many of our high school age people getting involved in the life of the church. You might have noticed that pretty much half of our band today is actually basement members, which is fantastic. We had our new young adults growth group kickoff last Tuesday as well, which is exciting. We've got the Rolfs and the Marshalls leading that group. They had, a, I think, over a dozen people rock up to the first night, which was fantastic. They're starting in the Book of Romans this term, which is going to be exciting. Our children are precious to us. And so as a church, we want to provide the best pathway to grow them into mature adult disciples of Jesus, which is why we take Bible teaching at all ages so seriously. It's why we take our care of children from creche age all the way through to, to our oldest members here so seriously. And of course, while the role of church is vitally important, it's in the home where our kids will learn the most. Now, perhaps this is a hard topic to hear because you've got children who have walked away from church or walked away from God or you're, just, you're not quite sure where they're at. And that's devastating. My, my brother and both of Alicia's brothers as well grew up going to church but have have walked away from church and from God. So to some degree, we, we feel that as well. But we also trust that the God who could deliver this baby from certain death, the God who could deliver this people from slavery, the God who sent Jesus into the world, this God can reveal himself 
to our brothers and to our children as well. No parent has ever saved their child. God's word and God's spirit do that work. And so we pray. We pray for our children. We pray with our children. We open up the Bible. We model a godly life, which includes modeling repentance and humility at the times when we get it wrong. But like Moses' mum, we have to trust God with what happens. And there is a comfort in that, isn't there? Because it doesn't ultimately depend on us. We trust the God who, like he did for Israel, sent his son to deliver us from slavery and to lead us into worship in fulfillment of his promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the wonderful events that we read in Exodus, the wonderful demonstration of your power and your sovereignty and, and your great love for us as well. And we ask that as we spend the next couple of months in this wonderful book, that all those things will just leap off the page to us. Thank you for the privilege of being your people. Thank you that we needed rescuing and you rescued us. You sent Jesus, your special son, into the world and that we can have life and hope through him. Please help us to cling to that. Please help us each day to fear you more and more and to fear others less and less and to trust you with the salvation of our children, to trust them into your hands and to know your great loving mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.